Now, we're in Daniel 4 um, this morning as we are kind of in the middle of a series in the book of Daniel, in the first six chapters of Daniel, um, called Unshakable there. You see on the front of your worship guide. And, uh, and, and we're kind of half at the halfway point, right? So we've covered the first three chapters. We took a little pause last week with deacon ordination. And then this week, we're picking back up. We've got chapter 4 this week, chapter 5 next week, and chapter 6 the week after that, Lord willing. And we'll close out um, this series as we're kind of been looking at how do we live unshakable lives of faith in turbulent and trying times. Daniel gives us a picture of that. But here in the middle of the narrative in Daniel chapter 4, we get a picture of God dealing with a wicked and pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's kind of been the main antagonist of the first three chapters. In chapter 1, you had him uh, leading the this besieging of uh, Jerusalem and abducting um, many of the Israelites, and especially of the, of the younger Israelites and the young men, and bringing them into his kingdom and kind of trying to brainwash them. And then chapter 2, we saw the dream that he had uh, where Daniel interpreted it for that his kingdom was going to be great, but it would come to an end, and other kingdoms would come, and they would come to an end, and this would happen and happen, but God was going to establish a kingdom, his kingdom, that would last forever. And then you get to chapter 3, and we get Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, building this big statue and demanding that uh, all the people worship it, but Shadrach, Meshach, Go, three of Daniel's friends, they refuse to worship the statue, they refuse to bow before the statue, and he throws them into a furnace filled with fire. The Lord protects them and sees them through that. But so far, the picture we have here of Nebuchadnezzar in the first three chapters is, is pretty harsh, of, of a harsh, wicked, pagan, idolatrous king here in Babylon. And here we, we're going to find this proud, arrogant king humbled in Daniel chapter 4, one of the more vivid passages um, in common in every culture that's common in every time period that's common among all people it's the sin of pride and that's kind of what we're going to be doing last week we kind of talked positively about humility and this week we're kind of seeing the negative side of that uh, the opposite of humility which is pride and so pride is a sin that can permeate any people can permeate any leader any society it's a sin that permeates our culture and that can permeate our hearts and if there's a sin that will prevent you and I from experiencing the work of God in and through our lives a sin that will prevent us from from living these lives of faith we've been talking about it's the sin of pride in fact when you look at Daniel in these first few chapters that we've seen he really gives us a picture of humility he's uh, he's been gifted by God in extraordinary ways yet every time he gets the opportunity to use those gifts what does he say he says it's not me it's God so oh, go get Daniel nobody else can interpret the dreams but Daniel can and then when Daniel comes Daniel says yeah but it's not me it's God it's not really me that can do this God can do this he's very humble in everything that he does but we get the other picture in Nebuchadnezzar a proud man so proud that he builds a statue and demands that everybody worship him worship the statue no matter what their religious views may be an oppressive man but there are things that we can learn about pride in Nebuchadnezzar's life because it is such a stark picture. You know, it's kind of pride on the extreme side you're going to see here in Daniel 4. And it's also kind of an extreme reaction, an extreme humiliation. And uh, but in this, we can kind of get a picture of how pride works in all of our lives. And we drift towards pride, not towards humility. We're driving down the four lane of life and you nod off, all right? You're going towards pride, right? You're going that way. You're not going towards the lane of humility. We don't drift towards holiness. We drift towards ungodliness because of the way we're wired and because of our sin. Is that going to work? All right, we're going to pause one second. 
me crazy. I know it had to be driving you crazy. Give me just a second. part of things you don't normally get to see. See, this is behind-the-scenes footage. It's like documentary style. All right. So Daniel chapter 4, all right? So Daniel chapter 4 is we're going to get this picture. We're going to not read all the chapter. We're going to read a lot of the chapter because to really understand what happens in the flow of this chapter, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting story to say the least, okay? So Daniel chapter 4, and let's see what God does in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, this proud man and what we can learn about pride and proud people and, and how God humbles us and how we can humble ourselves from Daniel chapter 4. So look with me starting in verse 1. As normal, we'll kind of make our way through this. I'll comment along the way and then we'll get into our takeaways. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So this is a good time to pause, all right, because we've just described King Nebuchadnezzar and the events of the first three chapters. And the most interesting thing here about chapter 4 is that it is you're being addressed by who? By King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it's the only part of scripture that I'm familiar with that a pagan Gentile king is addressing us, okay? So he writes this letter, this announcement that goes out to all these peoples, to all nations, right, that he wants to get the word out, and it finds its way into our holy scriptures here. The writer of the book of Daniel here places it in here for us to be able to have. So this is scripture ultimately being penned here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and being God using King Nebuchadnezzar in this way here. But another thing that we see here is just something has happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. This does not sound like the man who demanded everybody to worship his statue or to die. In fact, he says, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So in other words, God has done something for him that he is so excited about that he can't wait to tell it. He says, great are his signs, mighty are his wonders. And he talks about God's kingdom being an everlasting kingdom. Now, God had given him that, uh, had taught him that in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he had, been, he had received a dream where he was supposed to understand that only God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and that God sets up kingdoms, takes down kingdoms, but God's sovereign, God's in control. Only God's kingdom lasts forever. But he didn't learn it in chapter 2 when he heard it, okay? When he had this dream and it was interpreted to him by Daniel. Uh, because when we see over in chapter 3, he's still very puffed up with pride to the point that he says, worship my statue or, or you can be thrown into this fire. But in Daniel chapter 4, you know, we're seeing here something has happened to where now he seems to get it a little bit more, okay? Because not, all, not, all, not only has he heard something about God and his sovereign power, he has experienced it in a way that has left him different. Verse 4, he's going to tell us. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So he's, he's had another dream, second dream. And this one has alarmed him just like the second one, uh, first one alarmed him. But that first verse there is, is very telling. He says, I was at ease in my, verse 4, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I love 
what Pastor Tim Keller calls this, the sleep of pride. Things are going great, right? As far as he's concerned, everything's going well. He's at ease. He's at peace. And he's prospering. His, his personal economy's doing quite well. Everything's good in his life. And here, here's an alarming thing for us to keep in mind. Things can be going great in your life. But it does not mean God's approval is stamped over your life. Uh, things can be going well in your world, and you can be at war with the God of the universe. Things can be great with the family. Things can be great at work. Your retirement plan can be doing great. Everything can be doing well, right? Economy's booming. All is good. Yet, you could be at war with God. And just because your life feels very, quote, unquote, blessed doesn't mean that God approves of your life. In fact, you may stand condemned, right? There's this thing we call common grace, the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, the Bible tells us. And so we all experience good times and we all experience bad times. And the fact that you experience bad times doesn't mean that you're at war with God or that God doesn't like you. And the fact that you experience good times doesn't mean God's crazy about the lifestyle you're living. We're not to judge our lives and God's approval of our lives by our circumstances, right? First of all, if we're in Christ, we know we judge God's approval of our lives by what? The cross, right? By the blood of Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection. God's approval is stamped over me, not by what I do, but what Christ has done, right? And so now I live in light of that. But Nebuchadnezzar, he thinks things are pretty well here. He's at peace. Things seem to be going well for him. But his life gets interrupted by this dream. And it's an alarming dream that begins to let him know God's not cool with his life. It's not, things are not okay. And in verses seven through nine, he brings, all, he brings all these guys forward to be able to interpret the dream. And of course, none of them are able to do it. But Daniel, Daniel comes and Daniel, he has confidence Daniel can do this because Daniel did it in chapter two. He, a few years ago, Daniel's already interpreted the dream for him. So Daniel, tell me the dream. Here we go, verse 10. The visions of my head, he tells Daniel, as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. In it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I mean, so far, this is just a very peaceful dream, right? Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and he said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So let's pause there. So he looks at Daniel, and he says, tell me what this dream means. You're, nobody else can get this one. I think you can get it, Daniel. What does this dream mean? Please tell me. And he tells him that. Now, God has not gifted me, the best I'm aware, with the gift of being able to interpret dreams. But I could have figured this one out, right? I think there's a reason that everybody else is kind of like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that could possibly mean. 
I mean, a big tree that provides all this stuff for all the earth, and then it gets chopped down. And remember, chapter 2, he had a dream of a, of a big statue with a golden head. And he says, what does it mean, Daniel? And Daniel says, well, guess what? The, the, the statue represents all the kingdoms of the earth, and you're the gold statue. And, 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 and then by the end, the gold one's gone. It's crumbled. The, the, the rock, the stone hits it, and all these other kingdoms fall, and only God's kingdom's left. So I think it's pretty simple that we're going to figure out pretty quick that the tree's him. Okay? In fact, by the end of the dream, they're even using a personal pronoun and they're referring to a particular person, not a kingdom, right? And so it, it, this is not a hard dream really to interpret to some degree. But nobody wants to tell him this. Maybe and there's a reason that Nebuchadnezzar was alarmed when he had this dream. He knows the news, it ain't good. All right? So here we go. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So this one freaks Daniel out too. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have, grown, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him? This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be conf confirmed for you from, from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel doesn't, he knows it's bad news. He doesn't want it to happen to the king. He wishes no ill will on this king who, who by the way, has done some bad stuff. <laughs> He's done some bad stuff even to Daniel's friends, but Daniel's not wishing bad on him. He's... He's serving the king, and he speaks the truth to him. He speaks the truth to him. He does it in the kindest way possible, right? He's got to break really bad news to this really powerful man. You've got a couple options when you do this. You cannot do it, and you can refuse to, as they say, speak truth to power. Or you can do it in a foolish way and have your head lopped off instead of the tree being lopped off. Or you can do it like Daniel did. He does it with kindness, he does it with humility, yet he does it with boldness, right? And so it's a good picture for us. We must tell people the truth, but we've got to do it in a way that is kind and shows that we have their best interest at heart, as does Daniel here. He warns the king, you need to repent before this happens. Maybe your prosperity will lengthen. Who knows? Maybe God will forgive you. You need to change. Break off your sins. Begin to practice doing what is right. 
Stop oppressing people. You know, like building statues and forcing them to worship it. You know, stop doing these things. Start showing mercy to people. Start showing mercy to the poor and the hurting within your community and stop being this tyrant that you are. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he didn't learn a thing. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the, the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws, bird's claws. So... A year passed, right? God gave him a year to repent. That's a long time to have the opportunity to repent after that kind of direct confrontation from Daniel, that kind of direct dream given to him by God. Yet he did not repent. His heart continued to soar with pride. He continued in his sin. He speaks out in pride, right? As he walks out and he looks over the course of his kingdom, as he walks out on the porch right there, on his big deck, you know, on his palace, and he looks over all of his kingdom. And no, his heart does not swell with gratitude. No, his heart does not swell with worship. He did, oh, wow, thank you, God, for what you've allowed me to, to be a part of. Oh, God, I'm so grateful that I get to be the leader of these people. Oh, God, how you've blessed me. Look at all that I have. No, his heart swells with pride. Look what I've done, and I did it, and only I did it, and I did it for me. That's that's basically what he says there. Now, let's be clear. He was looking over something that was mighty impressive. In fact, there's probably never been a city quite like Babylon. One ancient historian said the walls around the city were wide enough for two four-horsed chariots to pass each other on top. So imagine eight horses wide, two two four-horse chariots are able to pass each other on top of the walls that surround the city. So you're talking very wide walls going all the way around the city. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world were those walls. Another one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife. So it was a tremendous palace, the foremost in the city of the world at this time. Two of the great seven wonders of the world at that time were there in Babylon. And he walks out on that palace roof and he sees all this beautiful stuff and his heart erupts, not in gratitude, not in worship, but in pride. And then in that moment, God speaks and he says, okay, you're going to be humiliated. You're, you're, you're proud and you're going to be humbled. Verse 34, it says at the end of the days, this is after his humility, after he goes through this dark time, all that comes upon him. And then in verse 34, it says at the end of the days, at the end of this seven periods of time, and we don't really know how long that was. It's probably seven years. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble so the chapter ends like it began with the king praising God. He looks up to heaven, his reason returns. He begins to worship, to praise and bless and honor God. His whole perspective shifts once he looks up to heaven. Notice the humility. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. That includes him. He has come to understand the key verse, that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And the question becomes, did Nebuchadnezzar get converted? You're going to see him in heaven kind of thing. And we really don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't spell that out. It's hard to say. Scholars are split on it. Some say, well, he still seems, if you read parts of this, he still seems to be caught in his polygamous nature. And then others say, well, I don't know. He seems to he really experience a conversion. I tend to think he was converted, but I can't say with certainty. But I do know this. He was humbled and he learned something. And this passage at its core is about a very powerful man learning he's not God. And at the end of the day, the core human struggle for each one of us is trying to be God when we're not. Pride causes us to do that. Try to be in control, to do things for us, to, and, 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 to, and, and it's human nature to not be grateful. It's human nature to not try to depend on God. It's human nature to not really worship God. It's human nature to craft idols. It's human nature to think it's all about us. And we see here a picture of what a proud person looks like and how God is able to humble the proud. And this extreme picture gives us some great takeaways here about pride. So let me give you three things about proud people, okay? So that we can recognize them in our own lives when we struggle with pride, all right? Not so we can point our finger at other people. That's just a good sign that we're proud, right? But how we can recognize it in our own life. Number one, proud people are self-centered, right? The world revolves around them right? Everything's inward. In verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar says, it's not this great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. It's very self-centered. I did it, and I did it for me and for my glory. And that's the core of pride. Very obsessed with self. Life orients around you. And pride can look different in different folks. Listen, pride does not manifest itself in the same way in an extrovert as it does an introvert. It doesn't, Right? Pride leads one person to think they can never fail, right? Pride leaves another person so fearful that they, they, they're afraid, so afraid of failure, they won't do anything because right? they're afraid of how they'll look in the eyes of others. Pride manifests itself in different ways in different people, but it's always self-centered. It's always self-serving. One person's pride causes them to boast in all their accomplishments. Another person's pride keeps them from accomplishing much of anything, but both fall prey to pride. Proud people focus inward on themselves. Their entire perspective is warped and turned towards ourself. The king thinks he did all this on his own. Well, we know he couldn't have done all that on his own, right? He led the charge, sure, but he had to have help. No one builds a city and an empire on their own. Not to mention, he couldn't even see God's common grace at work in his life. He is, he is literally drunk on pride. He can't even see all the people that have helped serve him, the people that have come along beside him, the people that are protecting him, the, the guy that's drinking his cup before he does to make sure he doesn't get killed, right? He, he, he can't see any of that. All he can see is what he has done. He's drunk on pride. 
And just like when someone fills up on alcohol and gets drunk on alcohol, it begins to warp their perspective and they begin to say and view things all differently and distorted that they would normally never do because of the influence of alcohol. Pride works the same way in our lives. When you get so filled up on pride, you become so self-centered, you begin to view the world in a warped way. Notice Daniel says in verse 25, all this stuff's gonna happen to you. You're, 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 gonna, you're gonna be humbled. Your, your hair's gonna grow long. You're gonna, you're gonna start thinking like you're an animal. You're gonna lose your kingdom. It's gonna get really bad until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see, he's so self-centered, his perspective on God is warped. He, he doesn't just view him, himself too proudly. He, he doesn't see God as God. He doesn't acknowledge the, the sovereignty and the power of God. He doesn't even think about God. He thinks only of himself. His self-centered lifestyle not only caused him to view God this way and, and wrongly, but he views others poorly as well. In verse 27, he's told what? To, to break off his iniquities and his sins and to start showing mercy to the oppressed. Because why? He was an oppressor. Right? We get a picture of that in chapter 3. Worship this or get thrown into the fire. That's a form of religious oppression, right, and persecution there. He, 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 people are just objects to him. Made to serve him. He was a merciless oppressor. He was not kind to others. He was cruel with his power. And pride will make us so self-centered that we'll see other people as existing to serve us. As projects, as hindrances, tools at our disposal. Remember what the two greatest commandments are Jesus told us and the Old Testament tells us? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. See, pride gets in the way of both. We're so self-centered. Pride distorts both of these loves. Pride says, I love God and I love people for what they can do for me. I love myself with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I love my neighbor for what he can do for me. That's what pride does. We're called to, we're called to serve and be humble like we saw last week. And to consider others as more significant than ourselves, Philippians 2 tells us. We're called to submit to God. We're called to humility, but pride distorts our relationship with God and others. Pride makes us turn inward. Pride will make us become self-centered. So how do I know if I'm self-centered? Ask somebody, right? Ask your spouse, right? Ask somebody close to you. And if you never see it in yourself, you're probably very self-centered. The most self-centered people do not recognize it. Nebuchadnezzar did not recognize it. People who are pursuing humility, people who want to be humble, people who want to put themselves down low so that God is seen as high and who want to serve others, they recognize their self-centered tendencies because we all have them. Everybody's proud to some degree. We all struggle with it. But proud people are self-centered people. Secondly, proud people grow calloused to sin. The king shows us a picture of someone hardened in their sin. He's grown and he's growing more and more callous. Once again, in verse 27, he's told he needs to break off his sins. He's told he needs to practice righteousness. He's, he's told he needs to stop sinning, right? But in other words, pride is not the only sin in his life. And it usually isn't, by the way. He's got other things he needs to repent of, like the suppression that pride has led to. And then what happens after this warning? Does he repent? No. A year goes by, no repentance. Then he speaks out in even greater pride, by my power, for my glory, consumed with pride. 
The king has grown so callous that rather than tremble and repent when confronted with what the dream means, he just continues in his sin. And he's so proud, he's not only got that sin in his life, but other sins that he needs to repent of as well. See, it was, it was pride that led him to building that statue in chapter 3. It was pride that demanded that he be worshipped. It was pride that caused him to challenge Yahweh to deliver his servants from that fire. It was pride that kept him from repenting when confronted by Daniel here in chapter 4. Pride causes people to grow increasingly callous in their sin and to be trapped in their sin. Pride causes, it's like a a gateway sin to other sins and then it's a sin that hardens us and causes us to become more callous. Imagine it like this. Imagine on this side of the stage there's a big open door and imagine on this side of the stage there's a closed door and I'm up here in this room, okay? And pride does this. Pride opens this door, right? So you've got this open door that we'll call the door of rebellion. And it makes it possible for all kinds of other sins to enter into my life because I view myself as the center of the world. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. Why do I care what God says? Why do I care what God's word says? What makes me happy? What makes me feel good? What pleases me, right? So I align my life that way. So that's the door of rebellion. And it's, it, that door's wide open if we're proud. And if we're pursuing pr- pride, man, that door just whoo, swings open. It's, a, it's just like you've heard of gateway drugs. Pride is a gateway sin. Opens the door for a lot of other things. Then over here is this door of repentance. And pride goes over and shuts and locks that door so that you can't experience God like you should. So you don't hear God's voice as you should. So you don't hear God wooing you to repentance as you should because instead of pursuing repentance, pride says, I don't need to repent, right? And so the, the door of hope, right, the door of repentance remains closed. The door of rebellion remains open. And what are you? You're trapped in this room with your sin, growing increasingly more and more hard-hearted and calloused towards that closed door because you can't even hear or see God anymore. The Bible says it this way in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, you have to get humble to receive God's grace. Proud people reject grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 10, 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. See, proud people live like God doesn't even exist. Doesn't mean you're technically an atheist. This means you're practically one, right? It means we just kind of live like, and we, that door's closed. And we must be on guard against pride. We must ask God to root it out of our lives. Because it is a controlling and powerful sin that will cause us to grow more and more calloused and trapped in our sin. We need God, by his grace, to fling open this door of repentance. And we need to run through it humbly. Or we'll just continue to pursue our self-centered, sinful lifestyles. And any of us are capable of this. Third thing about proud people. Proud people are accountable to God. This is a warning And it's an encouragement, right? And I think it's meant that way in the text as well. Here the king of this pagan nation is at ease and prospering in his palace and his life is interrupted by a dream. He's told to repent. He doesn't repent. Then the horrible vision, right, becomes a reality. I mean, you can just imagine his hair growing long. He he begins to think he's an animal. This is actually a disease that exists to this day where someone begins to think they're an animal, right? So here we've got Nebuchadnezzar. He now is thinking like he's a beast, like he's an animal, He's got like this, it's like a mental disorder and it's humbling to him because he loses his kingdom. He's living outside with the animals. That's what it means by the dew of heaven falling on him. And this goes on for like seven years. 
Because though he is proud and at ease and prospering in his palace, he is not beyond the hand of God. His life is interrupted. And God causes this man who is king to begin to behave and think like an animal. As one person said, the superman becomes subman, right? It's a complete reversal of his fortunes. And it's a reminder to us that all people are accountable to God. That, that God sets up kings and God takes down kings. And that there's not a person in power or a person in your life or you yourself who will not give an account to God. So first, let me say it as an encouragement. Imagine for a moment that you're in the shoes of Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego and you've suffered under this king. Your people have suffered under this king. And now you get this reminder, seeing him for seven years wandering around like he's a billy goat, and you get this Wow, you know what? God really does set up kings and take down kings. The God of heaven really does rule and really does reign. God hasn't forgotten us in this pagan land. It was an encouragement to them that not Nebuchadnezzar, but God was ultimately in control. That even when things seem bad, God is still on the throne. Because the whole takeaway was what? The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And that's a word of warning to rulers and a word of encouragement to God's people when mistreated by rulers. God's on the throne and he rules the kingdom of men. That's why it's so silly to get overly wrapped up in your favorite political party, whatever it is. Now, by all means, engage and vote and be a good steward of your citizenship. That's important. Certainly not. I'm involved in those things. Be involved in those things. But don't fret and obsess or sell out Listen, political parties and politicians will battle for thrones to the end of time, but the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and I'm telling you, he'll give it to whomever he wants to. God is absolutely in control of who sits on any throne or in any office anywhere in this world. I believe that. And that's a word of encouragement. When you, when, when you look at certain parts of the world and you see people, we see our brothers and sisters Christ who are oppressed and we know, well, God's sovereign. And there's, an end is coming to that at some point, right? But, but it's also a word of warning. It's also a word of warning to us that there is no proud person, no matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy, no matter how influential, who does not ultimately give an account to God at some point. At some point, we all stand before God and give an account. We may not have this experience like he had in this life, but at some point, Proud people get humbled. <laughs> either, we, either we get humbled in this life or we humble ourselves before God in this life or we get humbled in judgment. But everybody gets humbled. I remember as a kid, you know, I dreaded report card time. The way we did it when I, was, when I was a kid was you had to take that thing home. A lot of times now when the kids get older, they send them in mail and stuff. But when I was a kid, it was this little, uh, it was kind of like this little tan card stock. I can still remember. I can almost smell the thing, right? And, uh, and it had this place on the back for your parents to sign it. had all the grades. And I just remember whenever there was something on there that like a conduct grade or some kind of grade that I wasn't going to like, especially when you're like in elementary school, I was always nervous about bringing that thing home. And it was just, man, that was just the most humbling thing because no matter what you did, right? It's all coming to fruition now. You're going to take that thing. You got to hand it off, right? They're going to see that grade. They're going to see that. Every six weeks, that time would come around. You knew it was coming. Kind of helped keep you in check, right, when you were in school. But we forget there's coming a day when every person, including all of us in this room, we're going to humbly stand before God and give an account for 
our lives. All people, including proud people, are accountable to God. Philippians 2, that great passage we love that talks about the humiliation of Christ and how he became a man and took on the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death to die for us on the cross, goes on to say in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody gets humbled. Everybody. There's not a person that's ever lived that one day will not have to bow their knee to Jesus. And some will do it and be cast into everlasting judgment. Some of us will do it with pleasure and with joy because Jesus is our king. Some will do it because they have to do it because they're being judged for their sins. But everybody is going to humbly bow before Jesus. And the good news for all of us who struggle with pride, is that God is patient with proud people. He is so patient. He's not willing that any should perish, the Bible tells us. Look how patient he was with Nebuchadnezzar. This has been going on in his life for years. And then he gives him this start warning. He waits a year. He's being very patient with him. He could have thumped Nebuchadnezzar at any moment, wiped him off the face of the earth, but he didn't do that because he's, he's patient. He's long-suffering. And from King Nebuchadnezzar, we learn that proud people, yes, they're self-centered, Yes, they grow calloused and we will grow calloused in our sin if we stay in pride, but we're all accountable to God. So a lot of that, what are we supposed to do? What did King Nebuchadnezzar do? Look at what he says. He says, I looked up, <laughs> right? He says, at the end of the seven, seven years, he goes, I, I, I lifted my eyes to heaven, right? And, and that's just kind of a poetic way for him to tell us, I turned my eyes towards God. I looked to heaven in humility and my reasoned return, he says. And I began to worship and praise and bless God, the God of heaven. He says, everything began to change. When? When in humility, I looked up. Second Chronicles 7, 14, that great passage that gets quoted so many times, how God told his people when they were in sin, if they would repent, how he would heal them. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Starts with what? Humility. What does humility look like? Seeking his face. That's what Daniel's telling us that Nebuchadnezzar did. He, he looked towards heaven. He began to seek the face of God. And that's what getting right with God is about. We to humbly look to him. You know, this, this is on the other side of what was likely a seven-year trial that he went through, being stripped of everything, basically losing his mind for seven years. Yet at the end of it, there's no bitterness, and he's praising God, and he's worshiping God, and there's not even a hint of, I can't believe that I had to go through that for seven years. I can't believe that God let this happen to me. There's no bitterness on the pages of this chapter. Not a single one. Because his perspective is not self-centered anymore. His, the eyes of his heart are looking heavenward. And he's filled with gratitude and he's filled with worship. And that's what looking up does. It changes everything. Looking up and forsaking pride radically changes everything. It, it turns bitter water sweet. So we need to look up like Nebuchadnezzar, we need to pursue a God-centered life. You see that for him. 
This chapter begins and ends with him praising God. His, his life has been reoriented, it's refocused. And no longer, he's saying, no longer am I at the center, but I understand that God's supposed to be at the center. And that's what we need to understand. We need to look up and pursue a God-centered life, not a self-centered life. We need to look up and pursue repentance daily. Right? Uh, we need to be a people, if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you repented one time and then you don't ever have to repent again. It means now you, you, you've taken on a new posture in your relationship with God and every day is filled with repentance because you continue to sin. Now, I don't mean that you continue to wallow in and habitually rebel against God, but we all sin, we all mess up. And Christians, what makes us different is that we have a posture of repentance toward God and we confess and we forsake our sin and, and we wanna change and we pursue holiness, right? And we need to be doing that because if we don't, Pride takes root, and the door of rebellion props open, and the door of repentance slowly closes, and we become hardened and calloused in our sin. So we need to look up. We need to look up, and we need to pursue Jesus every day by faith. Think about it. Nebuchadnezzar's life of pride is the opposite of the life of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar looks out over the city of Babylon. As he looks out there, and he's tempted and sees all that he's been a part of, his heart swells with pride for his accomplishments. Look what I did for my glory. You know, Jesus was taken to a pinnacle by Satan. The Bible tells us in the Gospels when he's tempted. And he's taken and he looks over the kingdoms of the earth. And there's the creator. The, the, the agent of creation who's been there since the beginning. God made all things through Jesus and for Jesus, the Bible says. In Colossians, Satan takes him up to this pinnacle and he looks over the, the, all the kings of the earth. He says, if you'll just bow your knee to me, right? If you'll, if, you'll, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all this. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're to worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, Jesus goes to and looks over the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus Jesus' heart doesn't swell with pride and rebellion against the Father. Jesus, Jesus gives us a picture of what, of what it looks like to walk in humility and to worship God and have a God-oriented, God-centered life. Nebuchadnezzar looked over his kingdom and he worships himself. Jesus looks over all the kingdoms of the world and says, worship God. Worship God and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus understood and Jesus showed us life is not about self. Life is about God. It's about God. Nebuchadnezzar needed to be humbled, but Jesus came and hum humbled himself and came humbly in what? And God exalted him. One gets just humiliated. One humbles himself and goes to the cross. And God, in the end, exalts him. He gives him a name that's above every name. Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the one who came and slayed our sins like pride. He came humbly, died for us in our place, came and laid down his life for the oppressed, came and laid down his life for the oppressor. He came to rescue us from sin. He came to rescue us from death. He came to rescue us from hell. And if you and I want to slay pride in our life today, we need to look up to Jesus in faith. And not look up and be crushed by his example thinking I can never be that humble but look up first and foremost and realize we need to be saved by him and, and rescued by him so that once we put our faith in him he will empower us to do battle against our sins like pride. 
If you're a weary believer today, keep looking up. For Jesus is the judge of the entire earth and every king will bow to the true king and all kingdoms will fall before his kingdom. So we need to look to and follow Jesus at all times, anxiously awaiting his return because he's coming back. He's coming back. We believe that. He's coming back and we need to anxiously anticipate his return with our eyes towards heaven. Let's pray.